Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. As the research director of the Gray Center, I often find myself in the weeds of the academic and legal debates surrounding arcane points of administrative law. I've learned that the most useful law review articles and briefs find ways to bring broad, abstract concepts like separation of powers or political accountability down from the academic clouds to engage concrete policy disputes. Thankfully, we're discussing just such a work on this episode. Today, we're joined by David Bernhardt, former Secretary of the Interior and now Senior Counsel at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck. His new book, You Report to Me, Accountability for the Failing Administrative State, focuses on how his experiences at the department revealed problems with our administrative state. The book is out on May 9th. He offers his perspective about how to reform the administrative state based on years of public service spanning multiple presidential administrations. We're also joined today by the Gray Center's co-executive director, Adam White. Thanks, Jace, and, and welcome, David. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Secretary Bernhardt, what led you to write about your time as Secretary of the Interior and about the administrative state more broadly? Well, um, that's that's a great question. And you always start with what motivates you, I guess. And, you know, I, um, I'm i not someone that had a, a plan to be a cabinet secretary or uh, uh, an agenda that was based on a political uh, future. Um, but I, what I did have is I've spent 12 years um, in an administrative agency, uh, the Department of the Interior, as um, a political appointee. And in that time, in, the, in that period of time, I learned a lot of lessons. And what I wanted to do on one hand uh, was convey um, to people um, the role that political appointees uh, play in the um, administration of um, our government. But also, I was incredibly surprised at the experiences the Trump administration political appointees faced in 2017 through 2020 versus the experience that I had um, witnessed in 2001 to 2009 with the civil service. And, you know, there are 2.2 million members of the civil service, and it's so important. It's so their role in the functioning of our government is really, really important. Um, as a matter of fact, my wife uh, works at the Department of Justice, and she's a career uh, DOJ attorney. And uh, every day, a lot of people get up and do some great things. At the same time, uh, the civil service um, has, has a particular role. Their role is to serve as a meritocracy to help, um, uh, you know, help uh, policymakers move forward. And without uh, that help, it's it's hard for policymakers to figure out necessarily the law, the facts, the processes. But ultimately, the political accountability in our system rests with those who are elected, um, the president of the United States and uh, the members of the uh, um, legislative branch. And And those entities set the policy direction, or should we learn, um, you know, in, um, in grade school, we learn that those entities are the ones that set the policy direction of the United States. And everybody else is essentially a functionary to help them accomplish that mission. And when the bureaucracy or the civil service itself begins to feel like they 
are driving the ship of state. In my mind, that is fundamentally taking away from the will of the people to chart their course. And that, and that um, is a bit concerning to me. So I wanted to write a book that would be um, easy for people to read, hopefully a little bit interesting, um, as, as much as you can make uh, any description of administrative law um, interesting. I know there's a few of us that really care about it, and there's a lot that don't. Um, but I wanted people to, to see, number one, how things work, what the role of a political appointee is. And then finally, there's a chapter at the end that lays out what I think it takes to drive change and be an effective political appointee. I was probably involved in the hiring or management of three to 500 political appointees over a 12-year period. And I thought um, future appointees might benefit from having a, a manual to look at. I know when I was a young lawyer and a young appointee, I would have loved if somebody had said, hey, here's a way to, to avoid 12 years worth of hard knocks. And so um, I try and provide that at the end. So that's a really long story um, about why in the world I decided to write a book other than my wife maybe decided, hey, um, quit telling me these stupid stories and why don't you write a book? So, well, that's a good enough reason on its own, but the book certainly covers everything you just described and more. Just to give our listeners a little context, you mentioned your earlier time at, at Interior, and I was really struck uh, and reacquainted myself with your with your experience. I mean, you really seem to do a little of everything there. You were chief of staff and counselor to the secretary, uh, Secretary Norton in the Bush years. Uh, you were the, the Interior's uh, director of Congressional Legislative Affairs. You were the solicitor. Uh, as you discussed in the book, you served on the, the International Boundary Commission between the U.S. and Canada. Eventually, you were the, the deputy uh, secretary and, and then secretary. But in addition to all of that in your background, I also want to point out to listeners that the Interior Department itself is a fascinating, complex, maybe a little convoluted sometimes in its structure. There's just so much that has been um, committed to the Department of Interior over time. I was just jotting down notes ahead of time, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but just thinking through, there's, of course, conservation with uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service, and the research fund, the grant funds. There's land management at the Bureau of Land Management. There's water management with the Bureau of Reclamation. There's energy resources with, I think, is it the Minerals Management Service, or maybe the the name changed. Formally, yes. Yeah, formally, formally, it was called that, yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, with um, Native Americans, the Bureau of, of Indian Affairs. I bumped into this the most in my own private practice uh, when I was an energy infrastructure lawyer, and we had some issues that that uh, raised questions under the Fisher and Wildlife Service and National Park Service. That's a very long lead-up to a simple question. How can the appointed leadership of an agency really wrap its arms and its head around an agency so um, so complicated, touching on so many important subjects. Um, how is it possible to manage such a multifaceted agency? Well, you know, that is a, that is a wonderful question. And um, I think that there's a couple things that people uh, fail to recognize as political appointees. Um, the first is that and this is my opinion, like everybody has their view. And uh, the first thing is that, you know, there's no real qualification for a cabinet secretary. I mean, the, the president, um, the president decides uh, what the qualifications is that they, what the president believes is important. And that, those qualifications, even if you just look at the history of the Department of the Interior, 
they can really vary. I mean, uh, there's the secretary who was primarily uh, President Reagan's buddy, and that was like maybe his main qualification. And, you know, you, you can go down the list. And, and so there's no uh, requirement of what the president selects. There's obviously the requirement of being able to be confirmed by the United States Senate. Um, uh, and, then, uh, and then you take an oath. And then, then I think you're left with, um, okay, I have this new job. And who decides what the job is? And, you know, for me, uh, that description is enshrined in the law. And uh, if you were to look at the law, uh, the law as it relates to the Secretary of the Interior says essentially the Secretary shall supervise all functions of the Department of the Interior. And then it lists like 13 major functions. And, um, you know, I'm not sure if very many secretaries have ever even read that provision of the law, but I've always thought it was really, Congress was really intelligent in utilizing the word supervise. Supervision is not a passive activity. Supervision would not convey necessarily show up at a ribbon cutting. Um, and, and supervision also seems to imply a degree of accountability. And so I can tell you my personal experience. Um, the first day I was, um, I, I was, uh, the secretary, um, it was, it was an odd day because I took over at noon, um, uh, uh on that day. And, uh, the noon began with the cabinet meeting. And then I went back to my office and it was during a government shutdown. And, um, I realized shortly after I'd sat down in my old deputy secretary office that the secretary's security detail was out in front of my office and we're in a government shutdown. So the building's empty and I go over to them and I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, um, well, you know, we're down here instead of in our normal position because you're down here. And I went, oh, so I was like, okay, well, I want to grab some stuff and I'll move down to, I wasn't going to move into the secretary's office, but I'd move into somewhere near them. And then because we're in a government shutdown, I realized, hey, um, it could be weeks before I have a printer if I move to a different office. So I'm going to quickly print out this provision of the law that I just uh, explained to you. And as I did, I looked at all of the functions in the department that are listed. And I had a comfort, a great comfort in looking at that list because I'd grown up in the West. I knew these issues personally and passionately, but I'd also worked on them as a practicing lawyer. I knew the legal issues. I knew the process that the agency would have to engage in uh, to make a decision. More importantly, I knew, I knew because of my prior service, um, what I would need to do to get the facts to um, understand a situation. And I had great comfort that I would be able to supervise the, the activities of this agency. And candidly, I probably would have had very little comfort in my ability to supervise other agencies. And so I think that, you know, your question begins with maybe, maybe we need to make sure when we appoint people that they have, they have a sense that this is a serious job with a serious responsibility. 
Because if you don't understand the flaw, if you don't understand the process, and you don't understand how to acquire facts, it's hard to drive change within an organization. And that's not to say it needs to be the secretary. But my view is that every every political leadership team needs to think about having people that have new ideas and needs to think about having um, people with a relevant experience. It, it needs to have people that are not afraid to say, hey, I understand these issues really well. I'm going to do the work of reading and understanding the questions presented to me. And I'm going to ask a lot of questions before I put my name on the dotted line um, or deal with a particular crisis. Because at the end of the day, I do believe that we would end up with better outcomes if people were generally prepared and prepared to have the courage to lead their organization forward. Um, and to be honest, the bureaucracy, if you, if you say to a, a government employee, hey, I know this is an important and controversial matter, but I need you to give me the information you have. I'm going to assimilate that information in my, my brain. I'm going to work really hard with you to figure out the best outcome. And it may even be an outcome that you don't agree with. You know what they'll do typically? They'll run through walls with you. If you've given them the process and if you've also taken the burden off them to make the decision, the consequence of that, it, grabbing the decision as the leader, is you're making the decision that I own it. If I'm wrong, I'll own it. If I'm right, I'll own it. One of the most frustrating things I had as a solicitor um, was at often at times a political leader would hate that I told them that they had discretion, you know, because they wanted nothing more than their lawyer to tell them it's only choice A that's available um, because they didn't want to own that, the ability to, yeah, you can go A or B, like I can defend A or B just fine. Um, you know, if you allow me to articulate the fact, you know, you, you make a decision and I can articulate it rationally. And, and at the end of the day, it's very easy for political leaders to say, hey, somebody in Tupelo, Mississippi made this decision. Boy, it was a mistake. But with accountability comes uh, also accountability to the president. You know, if you're, if you're not hitting your targets of whatever goal the president is, the president ought to say, hey, David, you know what I decided? I, I think it's time for a different quarterback. And that's completely appropriate because he, sh he or she the president should be delivering for the American people. And, and his way of doing that is to say, David, get on with your program. And if you can't do it, come back and tell me, you know, the law needs to be changed or I need to get somebody else. And that's a legitimate position of a president. I'm glad you mentioned the relationship with the president. Can you talk a little bit about where the title of your book comes from and maybe the difference between the presidential approach to supervising the department under the Bush administration versus the Trump administration? Yeah. And, um, you know, the title of the book is uh, You Report to Me. And, um, and it really stems from a conversation that I had with, um, with President Trump, uh, really, when I was deputy secretary immediately before I um, was told, hey, I'd be acting for a while. And um, when I went in and met with the president, um, uh, I didn't know what I was getting into. Was my, my supervisor had 
is involved in a little controversy and it, it was a very awkward meeting for David Bernhardt uh, to meet with the president in that uh, in the in the Oval Office alone. And um, we had a discussion about the department, and he was great. He had some real passion about some of the issues at the department. And he was fantastic. And we got around to um, the end of the meeting, and I said to him, uh, he basically told me, "Look, you're going to be running this place for a little bit, or maybe longer." And um, and I. He asked me if I had any questions, and I said, I have one. Um, I'd like to know who I report to. And um, he was a little surprised by the question, to be frank with you. And his reaction was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, um, and he said, you report to me. And I said, well, I know technically that's true, but like, I got to get a job done. So I just really want to know like who I really report to. Me, he says. And this goes on a couple of times, and I'm sure he's really questioning his, um, you know, thinking about um, having me uh, run the good ship interior. And, um, and ultimately, uh, we got to a point where he basically said, look, I guess if you couldn't get me, you could call somebody else, like if I'm on Air Force One or something. But if you do that, and you know I'm on the plane when I land, you need to call me. And I'm like, okay, well, that none of that helped me, right? Like, so... Um, I, I'd taken over during a government shutdown. Um, I go back to my office. I'm there for a few days, and I decide to make another decision. And I knew that that decision would be very relatively controversial for Interior. And so someone in the White House needed to know um, before they read about it on the, you know, well, well, Washington Post or New York Times. I didn't think it'd be f- really favorable uh, in its write-up. And so I called the president's uh, personal secretary. And I basically said, Hey, um, this is the junior varsity quarterback at interior. Um, I'm the temp and I need to talk to somebody. Would you have somebody give me a call back? Like who I really report to. And, um, the president called me back about 15, 20 minutes later. And he, this call, um, for many might not have been very significant for me. It was really amazing because number one, he called, Number two, he, um, in the call, I explained what I wanted to do. And his first question to me is like, why didn't you do this earlier? If it was an important thing to do, which is like the most fair question. And I explained to him, I was kind of in the middle of a transition and kind of complicated. Um, and he, and he, he cut me a pass on that Two, I had explained to him that was going to be controversial. And he basically said, well, maybe you should tell people I directed you to do which is like the opposite of what you would think a politician would want to do. And then third, and this is the most important thing, he said, look, if there's something at that department that you need, you believe needs to be done, you should probably do it and not wait around to give me a call. And, um, and that was pretty empowering. And so for the next two years in running the department, that is the way... I ran it based on those principles. And here's what's amazing. Every time I called the president over the next two years, he called me back within 24 hours. Now, the secretary of the interior is a pretty important person. All you got to do is ask me. But um, the truth of the matter is, um, the truth of the matter is, I always found that extraordinary. I mean, if you were, if I called at 4 p.m., where do you think I'm on his call list? Like there's Melania, there's, you know, Kim Jong-il, there's, you know, a whole list of people. 
And then there's Dave, you know, call Dave back. And, um, and I always found that remarkable. Um, but here's the contrast. I worked for two cabinet secretaries in the, of interior in the Bush administration. And depending on the controversy associated with an issue, it could take us six or nine months to meet with the president of the United States. Now think about running the government those two different ways. And, and so my view of working for um, presidents is each president has their own style. Each president has their own involvement. Each president is going to delegate to their secretaries in a different way. Each, each president's going to decide like what's the right house, white house's role, role versus a cabinet secretaries. My experience as a manager of an agency, president Trump was so much more efficient in his management of agencies as a, at least, you know, at an agency like interior, I can't speak to anybody else, but I can tell you, he allowed us to move faster and farther in a shorter amount of time and be more productive in many, many ways because of his incredible management style. You know, David, I was going to bring this up later, but since we're, we're focusing now on, on presidents and cabinet officials, I'm just thinking through the that relationship. Um, of course, administrative law, modern administrative law is built around the idea that agencies have a lot of discretion and presidential elections have consequences and agencies can change their mind, you know, within that broad field of discretion. That's why we have Chevron deference. Your book actually talks a lot about delegation, which maybe we'll circle back to later if we have time. Um, but of course, no president is an expert in all the laws. Uh Probably very few presidents are experts in the laws of the uh, Department of Interior. Um, so there will be times, surely, when a, a president's policy instincts aren't necessarily totally on point with the with the granularities of, of law. And so I'm wondering, how as a cabinet official, do you navigate that point? I don't know that you ever had to do it on any of your policies under or under either of the presidents you, that you served under. Um, but how should a cabinet official in general navigate that relationship? A president has a big policy priority, and it's a, at the very least a stretch under the existing statutes. Probably the better way to read the statute on that policy is in a different direction. How do you navigate that relationship between the president, um, the agency below you, and all of it in light of the laws that Congress passed? Well, first off, you have to remember that you individually um, took an oath of office to well and faithfully execute the law. And so, um, at the end of the day, I mean, you, hopefully you never get there, but at the end of the day, you have to be comfortable with your decision. And I, I was, uh, involved in, um, uh, I, as solicitor, I got to watch secretary Kempthorne, uh, deal with the white house on a tough decision. And that's in the book. And, um, you know, ultimately secretary Kempthorne made the, you know, made the decision he wanted and um, the White ha the president of the United States, President Bush, understood that. But my, my view has always been very simple. The first thing to do is you better, before you tell the president you can't do something, you better have really looked at it yourself, looked at the law, looked at the facts. And my, my experience with President Trump was he really didn't care about how something was accomplished he was hoping for an outcome. And so if, you know, if he said, David, I'd like you to mow the grass at this way, um, 
you know, and I went back and said, well, you know, I really think we ought to use this and do that, um, do it this way, but we can get there. He would be very accommodating to that, to be honest with you. He, he, he was worried. He's not, he wasn't a, he wasn't the type of person that said like, you have to do it this way. He'd be like, you have to, you have to get to, you have to get there. Um, so number one, you probably have a lot of flexibility in some ways that you need to think about. But number two, if you don't have the authority, I mean, if you really believe you don't have the authority, you have to acknowledge that. Like the government is not here. The administrative executive branch is not here to fix all problems. It's to fix the problems that Congress told you to work on. And, um, and if, if you can't do it, like go tell Congress. And here's the amazing thing about Congress. Congress works really, really slowly until it has to work fast. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, if it's a big problem, they'll deal with it. They may not like it. Um, you know, but at, that was always my view. And then finally, you have to have the view and the courage yourself that at the end of the day, I won't compromise that line. And now I never had to feel that way, but like I was very comfortable. I've not been the Secretary of the Interior virtually all my life. And, um, and if I wasn't next week, like, you know, my family didn't care at all. As a matter of fact, most of them would have been thrilled. So, um, so, so that's the line. The line is like your own moral leadership. Like you love the law or you don't. Now, I do think you have an obligation before you say no to know it, to have studied it, to be careful about it. And more often than not, and here's the big issue, more often than not, a lawyer might tell you it, it has more latitude than you're comfortable with or not. And in those instances, you have to make the decision, hey, I'm not comfortable. My next question has to do with your relationship with the president again. And so much of the book does a great job taking abstract administrative law debates like what is the extent of the presidential removal power? And you work through them using concrete examples that you experienced firsthand. Can you walk us through uh, your experience with the removal power related to your time on the International Boundary Commission between the U.S. and Canada? Yeah, so this is this is a story that is in the book, and it's like, you know, I I, I used to tell this story a lot. It's like it's the most bizarre story you could imagine, uh, and it's not like it's not that interesting to your your listeners. So I don't want to give it a big blow up, but here's literally what happened. Um, I uh, I um, I had I went home one night uh, late uh, as solicitor uh, and sat down to eat dinner the phone rings and it's uh the white house personnel office and i'm the solicitor so i quickly step out of the room and i'm like i'm sure it's a job recommendation like somebody has given you know their name and they just want it's a, a name and to be able to say hey is this guy or gal a good person so i say hurry it up and tell me who the person is you're considering and the white house personnel says you and i'm like well i already have a joke I have the best job in America. I'm the solicitor of the Department of the Interior. And they say to me, well, um, we've talked to Secretary Kim Thorne, uh, who was the Secretary at the time, and he's confident that you can do both jobs. Well, that's interesting. What is the job? Um, International Boundary Commissioner, the U.S. Boundary can't U.S. Boundary uh, for the U.S. and Canada. Well, I said, look, that's something I've never even heard of. Like, no one's heard of it. It's the largest lawn mowing service in the world, and no one's heard of it. And um, and moreover, like, don't you think there's somebody qualified, like, at the State Department? 
and silence. And then they say, they have the audacity to say, they're going to make the decision tonight. It's like eight o'clock. I'm like, tonight, from my news reports, like the president, President Bush goes to bed at like 8.30, right? So that's not happening. And they're like, look, uh, we need you to do it. And um, what do you say? I mean, you say, great. And so I sit down uh, at the dinner table and I say to my wife, she's like, what was that? And I'm like, well, you know, I tell her the story I just told you. And she basically says, no administration is dumb enough to try and make you a diplomat. So I thought problem solved. My wife's always right. That's what you learn when you get married. And, um, and so, uh, so the next day I show up and there's literally on the fax machine, a signed commission. Like these things generally take like days to receive your commission. Well, I got it on the fax machine and I get a call that says, Hey, the department of justice is going to call you right away. Okay. I'm the solicitor in the interior. I got like a lot of cases. So they call and they, when they identify themselves, like it's half the department of justice on this call. And I'm like, this is unusual. And then they sort of began with like a little bit of background. And would you like somebody to go with you to seize your office? And I'm like, not particular, like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, here's what happened. My predecessor was a guy, uh, uh, the current, com- the former commissioner, since I had just gotten appointed that morning, um, the, my predecessor had gotten to a dispute with a lady in Blaine, Washington. Uh, Blaine, Washington is a little community right on the boundary of the U.S. and Canadian boundary. And this lady um, had, um, a, m- had several Pomeranians, and she was a pretty elderly. And these are small dogs. And her backyard had a hill that went right into the boundary. And so she decided to create a retaining wall and build a flat backyard which would allow her to like be out with her Pomeranians and like be happy. And so she built into uh, an area that was about 10 feet. Well, actually it was only three feet into what's called the 10 foot, but this stuff. And so she built this area. She built a little retaining wall, three feet high. And um, the, the commissioner had found out about this and was like really excited that somebody had encroached on this vista area and boundary. And so he had flown out and basically told her lady tear down your wall. I mean, sort of like, um, Ronald Reagan. And, uh, but this lady was not Gorbachev. And so she, uh, um, she went and hired the Pacific legal foundation who began to examine the authority of this entity. And, um, sought an injunction uh, for, um, you know, tearing down uh, Mrs. Lou's wall. And when that happened, my predecessor looked around and he had lawnmowers and, you know, he had all these things, but no lawyer. And so, because it's a little uh, international association. So they w- went over to the State Department and said, are you my lawyer? And apparently, and this is where things started going sideways. And the administration said, well, we're really not, the State Department said, we're really not your lawyer. Well, the guy went out and hired a private counsel representative in a federal court proceeding. Well, when you enter an appearance in a federal court proceeding and you're a federal agency, you have to be represented by the United States Department of Justice. Now, my wife who works at Justice says, remember, the Department of Justice is really spelled just us. Okay. And so um, 
So really didn't like that. Like, and suddenly everybody in the, everybody in um, the Department of Justice is like a little worried about some healthy private sector competition. And so they basically tell this guy, like, we're now your lawyer. And he's like, well, I had my lawyer last week and I like that guy. And, you know, he's, he's nicer to me. Um, and so this went on and on in the Department of Justice for a little while. And then and I'm getting to your point. And the president, um, the president ultimately had to tell the guy, like, look, uh, you're done being boundary commissioner. And it turned out that in the treaty between the U.S. and Canada, and I don't have the language in front of me, but it's essentially like you're appointed for life or dis- dif- disability. And, um, and so the commissioner and his private attorney read the, read the doc, read the treaty and said, Hey, we're appointed for life, even though they had not been confirmed by the Senate or anything like we're appointed for life. And, um, the department of justice didn't think that was funny. And so, um, that that is why like on this call i'm on like it's olc and everything well it turns out which is the office of legal counsel like they you know they decide what a treaty means even if it's ambiguous my predecessor actually would go when i'd go to an event he'd show up and say hey i'm the i'm the person like you know which is very awkward and then um and then he ultimately litigated the issue and i think uh, a year or two years after i resigned um the Ninth Circuit upheld the president's power uh, to remove the boundary commissioner. But in the whole experience, I'm like, who would have thought 200 years after um, these things seem clarified, we're dealing with, you know, this. And so it's a very interesting little issue about, um, you know, the president has the ability to get rid of um, people in, you know, pretty clearly, but sometimes people don't agree and it takes a long time to work through that. And it's very, you know, it's not very comfortable for the schmuck who's behind them. Thanks for sharing that. And just for our audience sake, the book is full of great stories like that. I was muted while you were telling the story, but there are several times where I was laughing out loud reading the book. So it's an enjoyable read in addition to having all that information. Turning from conflict to where maybe people with disagreements can work together, early on in the book, you told a story about working with a more liberal career legislative council during the Bush administration. Would that right. be possible today? Uh, there's a lot of people that it would be possible with, honestly. Um, but there's also, uh, and I'll give you an example. I mean, I don't know their politics, but in COVID, you know, COVID is is happening in, in uh during the bush administration spring of 2020 and i um i asked uh basically there were a couple of public health officers that um were assigned to track everything with us and i i engaged with them right away i told them i'd be making the decisions not them um and so they didn't have the burden but i wanted every bit of information they could provide me so that I could understand their views versus other programmatic views that I, I needed to be responsible and manage the department. And they were wonderful to work with. The, the story you reference, and this is extraordinary, um, the story you reference is a, a person that I was asked basically as a young, um, you know, I was leading a small office and I was told, hey, you need to move this person because they're not, um, they're not, they don't really necessarily fit with our mindset. And um, I sat down with that person and visited with her 
and asked her a few questions about the role of the secretary. And she said, irrespective of who the secretary was, her job was to, you know, may help make the secretary successful. And I believed her. And because of her experience, and and this was a, a lucky thing of working at a small office. I don't know if you if young politicals would have this happen now. But because I was in a small office, I could work with her. And I learned very early in that small office with her and other members of her team, their passion was they wanted to be known as the entity who helped the secretary succeed, irrespective of who the secretary was. And what I learned from them as a young political was like, she could make me look much better. And it's all about me at the end of the day, right? I mean, honestly, but not not really. That was facetious. But um, what it meant... We're laughing is on that you I, when you say it, don't worry. Yeah, I, I outperformed. I outperformed because I had people that really knew what they were doing helping me. And that taught me the value of finding that coordination. And I do think, particularly in the Trump administration... There was a large amount of peer pressure on civil servants. Keep your head down. Don't help them. Like there's not, that's not going to be good for you. I had a, I have a reference in the book about a, um, example with the park service where a person had a great idea for an emergency, um, response, uh, I, an emergency response idea. And I met with them when I was in a park and I said, hey, come see me. Um, you know, I'd love to talk to you more about this idea. And they never came. And I saw them again. And I said, uh, why didn't you, um, you know, like, did we drop the ball? I figured like my team had probably erroneously said, like, we, you don't have time to meet or something. And, and so I said, boy, I hope that didn't happen. He said, oh, no, sir. He said, um, you know, I sat down with my supervisors and they said the worst thing I could do with, for my career was come to you with a good idea like that and have you take credit for it. And, um, and I thought, how horrible to think that that's the way you run an organization. So that is that was a reality in the Trump administration. But there are a lot of people who will work with you if you will find a way to enable them. And you mentioned, speaking of the Park Service, there was an example of transpartisan professionalism even during the Trump administration. You mentioned their handling of both the George Floyd protests and then January 6th. They just did their jobs. Absolutely. And, we, you know, the Park Police themselves were extraordinary. And I, I have a vignette in there about um, they, they were... Um, you know, there was the Lafayette Square incident, which was very high profile. Um, and the park police were highly criticized by um, members of the House of Representatives in particular, highly criticized for their actions. And I believe their actions were extraordinary. To be honest with you, they suffered serious incidents leading up to that, injuries leading up to that incident. And those same park police who were criticized were members of the team responding on January 6th to go up there and protect the very people that they criticized them. And I think that speaks volumes for our, you know, we have a lot of good people um, in law enforcement. We have a, got a lot of good people in government. Um, we also have a few, and, and more than a few, challenges. And 
My concern, and, and with the book, it's okay, the civil service has an important job, but if if 1% of them are pushing back against the president's policies, that seems uncomfortable. 1% of 2.2 million seems like a lot. What if it's 2% or 10% or 20% or 50%? And what percentage do you think wanted to be unhelpful to President Trump? And that probably depends, your answer to that question probably depends on how you define resistance. Well, and you tell several, you said you adapted Tales from the Swamp, which I think your colleague James Shirk had published elsewhere. That's but right. Examples of that kind of resistance are in the book. But I know in our time remaining, I think Adam wanted to ask a question about delegation. Yeah, not to not to drag this back down to the minutiae of administrative law, but I was struck that your book, amidst all of the, the, the sort of the stories and, and accounts of your time in government, you do step back from time to time and look at the big picture. You write about uh, delegation, uh, non-delegation doctrine. And so I'm just curious, having now been a, a leader of an agency, how has that shaped your thinking about delegation? And I mean, in a very, maybe in a, ironically, in a vague way to ask the question, uh, how narrow can Congress really make statutes um, without making them too narrow or too rigid? What's the right balance between leaving an agency some practical discretion and uh, delegating away too much power? So I think there are um, two phenomenon that I really try and highlight in the book that, that worry me. And when I think about delegation, I think about it in two different ways that are for your administrative law listeners. One is a little different. The first is, what is the authority um, that was conveyed and arguably conveyed in the statute to the agency? And the second is, what is the authority that the agency policymaker has delegated down and what degree of accountability is on that. So one is really the stretching of the authority and one is how you, how it's managed as it goes below. And my own view is that the Chevron doctrine um, led to a ability and an interest of agency officials, both at the public policy level, policymaker level, but also at the individual employee level to be very aggressive at stretching the um, stretching the authority that you have, whether it's ambiguous, um, any ambiguous authority. And there, on one hand, at, at a policymaking level, there's interests like you raised, like the president asked you to like stretch it. Okay, that's one example. But oftentimes, the the court arguments on Delhi on Chevron have arisen because some idiot in some a, uh, you know office made a decision that was really stretching it, and it may have not even had any legal review when it was made. But then the government is defending that all the way up, and there and and what that does that deference to an ambiguous statute has led to, in my opinion has led to executive branch agency employees and policymakers that almost believe there's no boundary to stretching. And so they're going to solve whatever problem they want or whatever they're passionate about or whatever they feel like. And it, it's made the executive branch almost unaccountable. And you have to realize that very few decisions actually are challenged in court. I mean, you can say a lot are, I mean, a lot get there. 
but a lot aren't. A lot, something's imposed on an individual or a proponent. You know what they do? They accept it because they want their permit or they want their, they, they're happy to take a restriction that's maybe not um, lawful to get, you know, it's the only way to get to the yes. And so for me, policymakers in the agencies aren't paying attention to the decisions that are being made. And oftentimes those decisions are made after the law has already been stretched once or twice by the policymaker. And the courts are basically like, yeah, it's good enough. Let me get greedy and ask one more question. Since you mentioned permits, um, that's an issue that's always been on my mind ever since my days as an energy infrastructure lawyer. I think about it a lot now from the, the academic and think tank perspective, thinking about it a lot now, and particularly in light of U.S. competitiveness with China and right. our right. ability or inability to actually build uh, semiconductor fabs in the United States to mine the rare earths and critical minerals. And I, I can go on and on. Don't get me started. I'm just, since you touch on this in your book, maybe you could give a, a, a window into your thinking for listeners here. Um, how would you... Uh, improve the, the the general system of, of permits for energy infrastructure and other things in the U.S. if you were given the chance to fix it all yourself? Well, um, I tried um, in the existing system. Um, you know, I said, if, if you can't change the law, here are my ideas. And I wrote them down and had time frames. And actually, a lot of it is what's in the permitting regula- uh, discussions that are happening legislatively. And we actually changed the NEPA regulations for the first time under President Trump. And I played a, a role in that. Um, and certainly my ideas played a big role in that. But I really believe that, um, and I learned this from Trump, I, I, which I thought was really interesting. I believe that for many of these activities, uh, we would be in a much better place if we laid out what a applicant needed to do in terms of meeting the environmental standards. So you can't jeopardize the species. You can't, um, you know, you can't damage water quality to X or air or whatever. And I think we should really have a series of affirmative requirements that we stand behind. And we ought to say to our company or an entity, you want to be a project proponent? We're not going to tell you, we're not going to tell you that you have to spend six years um, necessarily um bringing us a rock that we like but if you don't meet these standards we're going to shut you down and have some sort of mitigation fund for that because i fundamentally believe we ought to have the courage to say what the requirements are up front as the government uh, david burkhart and we should be protective of the environment um but we are in a place where we're wrapped so much around the axle you can, you can, I have, I have had, um, environmental impact statements that are literally tens of thousands of pages. And I, I used to say to people, look, you give me that document and I'll win in court because uh, in opposing it, because I know that the left hand has no idea what the right hand wrote. And the purpose of the process was to make sure the decision maker was better informed. The only thing I know about a 10,000 page document is no human read it. How does that serve the purpose of the act? And we're at a point in our society now where there's not a decision made, where alternatives are not thought through, that there's not public involvement. 
I love the um, fundamental purposes of the NEPA statute. I believe that uh, there needs to be public participation. I believe that there needs to be alternatives considered. But I believe you could do that on the front end and say, look, here's some things we need to think about. Here's our regulations and go to a permit by rule and, uh, or general permits. Um, you can call them different things, but it really is put the requirements out there. Tell them if you submit a plan that promises to meet these permits and you back it with some sort of financial assurance, you go forward. And if you mess up, we are going to hammer you. We're going to put you out of business. It doesn't matter to me what you said as the risk standard, but I believe companies would be compliant and, and, and would want to perform and it would make us competitive with the world. So if Dave Barnard could wave his magic wand, that would be my solution. And I would say probably very little litigation. Um, you know, it, the other way to do it would be to say somebody has to decide other than the courts. And, um, and no one wants to do that really, but that would be, somebody has to be the final decision maker on, is this an important public project? Can you imagine if somebody wanted to build the Hoover Dam today? Like it would never happen. But think about the 40 years or 50 years or 70 years of benefit we've received from that. Pretty significant. And we'd be giving that up. Makes no sense to me. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time and talking about the book with us today. I just have one final question, and that is, is there anything else you would want people who are interested in administrative law and separation of powers to take out of the book that we haven't already talked about? Well, I think the most important thing is that um, whatever one thinks of the government today, the people have the ability to make it better. You know, demand that your uh, congressman pay a little attention to these issues. Demand that your president think about um, uh, dealing with these issues and focus on outcomes instead of process. The, the American people hold the cards here. And that's, that's why I wrote the book, because ultimately, all of these officials report to you and to me, the American people. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today, David. I do hope people will read the book, and I, I hope you stay engaged on these issues. Well, that's very nice of you. Well, Jace, thanks for hosting today's episode. Thanks to David for joining us. And thanks to everybody for tuning in for one more episode of Gray Matters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.